For me, I think a voice and a song in particular carries with it a human experience at its simplest and often its rawest. Music has always been a vehicle for the spirit of people, the spirit of the times and the stories of people. And where we believe those stories, that's empathy in action. And that's where action can begin. Here, and this is Cry Power, my podcast about people who are using what's available to them to change the world. Presented with our friends at Global Citizen, on each episode I'll be sitting down with people who are putting themselves out there to support a cause that's dear to them. I'll be talking to people whose work is making a real difference, musicians, artists, or just some of my heroes. Marcus Mumford, thank you so much for, for joining me here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure and an honour and I'm a big fan of yours uh, both in a, in, a, in, a, in a personal way and then in, in, a, in a musician-y way as well I have to say. <laughs> so you know I, uh, I am of you so it's nice to be with <laughs> you man. Thank you. Um, you do a huge amount of work for a lot of things for, for War Child in, in particular in the past and more recently for Grenfell after mm. the Grenfell disaster. What was it that kind of spurred you into into that action or, or doing kind of uh, activist work? Well, um, it really is a pleasure to be here with you, mate. I'm really, um, as you know, I'm a huge fan and um, it's just nice to see you, get to hang out. I don't really talk about this stuff very much publicly, so I I haven't in the past. I've always struggled a little bit with the idea that once you become a musician, your your views for some reason become more more public or, or you're there, there's an expectation on on musicians who do all right to to have views on things and to become more politicized and and um obviously there's a tradition of musicians involved in activism and and in charity work which i think growing up like in the 90s i don't know about you but i was sort of slightly put off by bands and artists getting quite preachy so I initially in our career we sort of kept our powder dry we we, we didn't want to do uh, too much publicly before we'd sort of done the work privately and quietly as partly because I was brought up in a in a kind of anonymous giving culture my parents were, would encourage us we used to tithe we used to always give away 10% but you were never allowed to say who it came from or where it was kind of going so uh I don't know whether it was partly that and partly a reaction to the big bands of the 90s getting quite preachy. And then, of course, I think being in a touring band, the more you tour, the more you see, the more you meet people. And the more people ask you, and then you realise, well, there is this platform there and it would be wasteful not to be involved in the things where I feel my heart's leading me, right? So so for the first few years of our career, I sort of resisted a little bit the idea of public um, either advocacy or fundraising or working in charity sphere or whatever. And the thing that led m- my wife and I together um, to change our approach and become, she was already doing some stuff before because she's an actress, but to change our approach and um, and do something a bit more public facing um, was eventually the 2014 war in Gaza at the same time as the uh, attempted genocide against the Yazidi people in, um, in Sinjar. So um, that, was going on and we'd been introduced to War Child by that point and we felt um, compelled really to um, start working with them more intensively and then we both went on trips to the field to see their work, both became ambassadors and then set up a, 
um, a yearly really private and quiet um, dinner, which you kindly came and played at, which you were amazing. Um, uh, and we've done that now for five years, and we're doing and we and we set it up in New York as well, which has been cool. And and Kerry traditionally has done more of the advocacy work, more of the public stuff, and I've done more of the backroom squeezing people for money. Stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is hard to do. Which is yeah, yeah. But um, people, I think people are innately and sort of um, organically generous. I think sometimes then we all need encouraging, but. Um, our experience has been of people's overwhelming generosity, which has been cool. I can understand that, that sense of, you could call it discomfort, of putting your putting your face out there and being, let's say, being that ambassador and, 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 and drawing attention to, even though you know, you know that the attention needs to be drawn to certain things. I still find a conflict there because I don't think, I, I, I think of myself as a musician first. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's my job. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people always want to be preached at by their favorite bands and artists that's why it's been quite private and quite quiet most of the time but i also then it's like the more you see the more passionate you feel and um and now we we've had really the privilege of going to some of these places that have been severely affected by conflict especially with war child over the last few years and then i feel like i had the privilege of being able to go there to bear witness and then I feel a responsibility to talk about it a bit more so I just really um, resist people talking about things that they haven't seen for themselves or experienced for themselves and I, I, I feel uncomfortable with people telling other people's stories on their behalf so I like the idea of amplification um, rather than taking on someone's voice I, I felt like no it's not my job to tell people's stories I can tell my own story my experience of these things and I have had some now, but I don't feel it's my place to go out and tell their story for them. Right. Okay. Okay. And that was some, something you said there about being a witness. And there is something very important about, I suppose, about being a witness. But when you are a witness, as you say, there is a certain responsibility to the thing that you have witnessed and you have borne witness to. So I think so. I mean, a lot of it grew for me out of out of two concepts, the idea of being a better neighbour. I was sort of investigating that and studying it and thinking a lot about it, um, really, all my life, but, but specifically the last few years. And the second one being the idea that as a culture, I don't think we listen enough. And I did a trip um, to Jerusalem after my first trip with Warchild. We flew, we landed in Amman, in Jordan, and we went to the Zatari refugee camp. That was my first trip. Um, f- yeah, five years ago, and um, I didn't quite realise geographically how close uh, Amman and Jerusalem were. And I had a couple of days. Kerry and I went together, and she had to go work. And I had a couple of days off after the Amman trip. And I so I went to Jerusalem and got connected through friends of friends with a wonderful woman called Robbie Damlin, who runs a thing called the Parent Circle, whose son was killed um, in the Second Intifada by quite a famous Palestinian sniper. And she linked up with Palestinian parents who were grieving and who had lost kids so a man called Bassam whose a 12 year old daughter was killed in crossfire um, by IDF forces um, and they partner up and tell their stories together side by side and 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 look and look at reconciliation from the point of view of both of us have suffered both of us have experienced the same thing and um, and I, and so she was the first voice I heard in Jerusalem and 
and we'd done this trip where we listened to as many different people from different sides of the conflict historically as possible. So in the morning you're with a freedom fighter in Bethlehem and in the afternoon you're with a rabbi in a settlement in one one of the um, areas of the West Bank. So uh, it's, a, it's a whiplash, you know, you're, but we're just listening. And I remember Robbie saying to me, the first thing I heard when I got into Jerusalem, she said, um, whatever you do, don't pick a side because then you import my conflict into your country. She said, where you see injustice, stand up for it. And she said, the most important thing you can do is listen to my story because when you listen to my story, you bring dignity to my humanity. And that for me has been something, that 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 one phrase really changed my life uh, and the way that I approach some of these issues, some of these some of these things around what we see is, as musicians, I think we do get exposed to more people's stories and people for some reason, open the door to musicians more than they might other people, which I, I kind of disagree with the rules of the game. I don't think people should really care what I have to say because I'm in a band. But since there's people listening, then I feel a responsibility, like yeah. you said. But that, but then, but then if you just start mouthing off about things that you don't really know about and you haven't really investigated and learned for yourself and you haven't seen in the flesh and you haven't listened well enough to other people's stories, then... I have an issue with that as well. So sort of slacktivism or um, or sort of a, an ignorant approach to serious issues, I, I take issue with. And, you know, I don't want to fall into that trap too much myself, although inevitably I will, I'm sure. Absolutely. I, I don't think you're in any any danger of that in any way, shape or form. So it's interesting just to, what you say there about listening to my story brings brings dignity. dignity to my humanity. Yeah, It's something which I think about quite, quite often, as you say, let's say when you listen to, to somebody in good faith and you, and you are open and that's empathy in action, how would you manifest that? In, what do, do you do, mean? Like, what do you do with it? Yeah, I suppose mm. so. Or would you manifest that into your work, into mm. your musical work, I suppose? Yes. I do think that once you've, once you've spent time listening, then it, it does end in the point where you have a responsibility to act in some way and inaction can be an action in itself. <clears throat> Best way to explain it is probably through examples. So, and yeah, and then I'll come on to the music thing because that's relevant as well for both of us. Um, you end up writing about what you're passionate about and once you listen more and you learn more, you can become passionate about things that you weren't before. Um, I, I, so <clears throat> around... Around Grenfell, I was on the fourth floor of our apartment block in our flat. I was up early with my daughter the morning of the fire and I looked out the window making a cup of tea at like six in the morning and I saw what I, it looked like 9-11 to me, right? So I was looking out the window, saw this big plume of smoke. It's like, shit. Turned on the news and of course it was all over the news what was happening. It was ongoing. So I woke my wife up and said, I think everyone is going down. We should, you know go down take take some it was a really hot day it was ramadan take some water take some nappies whatever and and people just piled onto the streets from the local community um which was extraordinary but it got really log jammed quite quickly and it was an ongoing issue the last person died in the tower at 8 30 in the morning um i believe so uh went down like like lots of people to clement james and um one of the doors was shut and they weren't letting anyone else in. So I went around the back door and they were letting supplies in that way. So I walked in and then it was just so hectic that everyone was just lending a hand in terms of sorting stuff out, getting cups of tea or water for people who are coming still into the church in their pajamas um, who'd escaped from the tower. And it was very, it, was, it felt as much like a war zone as the places outside Mosul that we visited or Central African Republic 
um, or Gaza, like all of those places that we've been to, this felt as much like a conflict zone to me. So there was ash in the air. It was really hot. People, a lot of people were fasting. Um, and it was really intense. And obviously a lot of us went back most days after that. And I ended up meeting with a lot of survivors and bereaved in the first week. And there was, there was, there was chats going around cause it, cause it was just after one love Manchester gig that Ariana Grande had done so successfully. People in the music industry that I knew, a lot of whom are from that area, like I am, um, said we should think about putting on a gig. And for some reason I found myself in the middle of some of these conversations going on, various labels and promoters and, and of course everyone just wanted to help and their instinct is like, how can we help? Let's help in the way that we do as musicians or people involved in music. Let's, let's do a gig. One love had just happened. It was a success. And, um, because I'd spent quite a lot of time down there and got to know people quite well, um, who were involved in it. I ended up in those conversations and we had Hyde Park on hold, 65,000 tickets. We had every single artist you can imagine saying yes, like some of the world's biggest artists, including Adele. And she and I spoke um, very early on and we said to each other like, yeah, of course we'll do this thing if that's what's wanted, but we have to go and listen to the people most affected, not just the wider community from whom there was quite a lot of enthusiasm. Remember going to see Almanar Mosque, who are incredibly involved and still are um, in in looking after people who have just been unbelievable, and people at Rugby Portobello Club and Clement James. But we needed to speak directly to bereaved and survivors, so we did, and it was clear when you got to the people most involved and most affected by the tragedy that it wasn't the right thing, um, it wasn't the right time. It wouldn't have been sensitive to do it, um, and there were a couple sort of like celebrity songs floating around and they hadn't asked people if that's what was wanted. And it felt like the most respectful thing to do. So um, it was clear that that wasn't the right thing. So we stood, everyone stood down beautifully actually and really listened. And then we felt like Adele and I went, ended up going down almost every day and, you know, she gets the door open quite easily to her. Right. So, so people wanted to share their stories and we just started listening and we couldn't, we couldn't stop then. And then we started behind the scenes speaking to um, members of local and central government, speaking to various agencies, working various um, organizations in the area. And it felt like the best job we could do at the time was to listen and and from listening, it seemed like everything was getting quite fractured. And so just to encourage the natural and organic coming together of people most affected, which was already happening, but we were sort of, our job was trying to connect, like, have you met this guy? Have you met th- this girl? These guys are doing similar things. You'd probably get on, you have similar, you know, to-do list. Um, feels like collaboration needs that. Needs that. So, so we're trying to bring people together more and like I said it was happening organically anyway so it wasn't like we were it was our idea or anything and out of that um this organization called Grenfell United was born um which is now sort of the most representative uh group for survivors and bereaved and um and then they again the, the most important thing was for them to come together for them to be able to mourn together um and to be able to come up with their sort of priorities for what they're going to do, which is 
and they're, they're just an amazing organization. And then they asked me if I would go out and find a board of trustees to set up a charity because they didn't want to have to handle any money themselves. There was quite a bit of money floating around. People were incredibly generous. And normally people's first instinct is to give in some way, which I think is beautiful. And our, our, our country has a history of that um, in a good way. Um, <clears throat> but so th then we set this thing up called the Grenfell Foundation, which is designed to support um, survivors and bereaved and the wider community as well for the long long run the NHS are building a, a program that's going to last 30 years and it's, so we're sort of in it for as, as long as we need to be in it but that, sorry that's such a long answer to your question but that came really from from being quite disciplined with the idea of listening before doing anything and trying to understand and hear people's stories and, and really Grenfell sadly is a story of voicelessness like people you know, the Grenfell Action Group blog, which was written, co-authored co by our friend Ed Defan, um, which predicted the fire happening because of um, a history of, of uh, neglect in that area and um, sadly predicted quite accurately what it would take for people to wake up and see it. And, um, and you know, if he, if those guys had been listened to more closely, I, I, I don't think it, it, it would have ended up the same way. So voicelessness and powerlessness. So just to then start speaking for people would be like a continuation of the tradition of voicelessness, really. So um, we, we, yeah, we try and amplify those guys and they're amazing. Some of the most dignified, beautiful people I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and I know then there was the, there was a football match as well too. There was, yeah. So then after the, um, the, the idea of the gig went away, um, we set up, we, we started asking parents really what would be helpful for their kids, a lot of whom knew kids in the tower, either whether they were families from the tower or local families. Um, of course, the effect was massive on the local community and a lot of kids didn't know what to do with it. The building's, I mean, it's still there. It's still an eyesore. It's still, I mean, it has to be there because of the police investigation that's been going on, but it's, you know, it's right in the heart of the community and it's a, it's a pretty traumatic visual. So. Kids were, were were suffering over that summer. It happened in June, didn't it? So um, we went to Queen's Park Rangers, the football club in London, and said, would you help us set up a programme for kids where we do nine to five for zero to 18-year-olds. They can come play sports, basketball, football. It's for anyone who wants to come. We won't check postcodes. We'll just put it on. And we ended up getting like 300 kids a day for that. And that culminated in what was um, uh, the game for Grenfell. And that really was something that people wanted. Um, and uh, many of the uh, bereaved and survivors played in the game. Some of the firefighters played in the game, which was very emotional. Um, and and it felt by then it was a really cool day out uh, for the community. It was a sold out Loftus Road and it was the culmination. It wasn't just about one event for TV or fundraising. It was the culmination of a whole summer's worth of programs benefiting kids that would then continue and, and still do. So um, that was a really cool thing. Yeah. Um, we even got Mourinho to come. He called, he called me on FaceTime. He was with a friend of mine and he said, I'll come and I'll play um, and I'll, I'll go and goal for the last 20 minutes, last half an hour. He said, people will be amazed how good I am in goal. And he came, and what was wicked is, he, um, I went and did like an announcement video with him in his house and and uh, was talking to him with one of his representatives. He said, when do you want me to come down to the game? I just said, oh, you know, you're on for the last half hour. So his representative said, you could just go sneak in at halftime and then go. And he was like, well, what's everyone else doing? 
So what everyone else is coming for a team talk an hour before, which is going to be televised and, and then sitting on the bench. And he was like, well, that's what I'll do. If everyone else is doing that, I'll come do that. And everyone just really, really threw their weight behind it. And it was a real, it was a real success. And I think it meant a lot to people um, that, uh, yeah, to, to sell off, to sell road out was great. And um, yeah, a lot of people in the music industry were really involved. Ferdy Younger Hamilton um, was really involved in the organization of that and QPR were great. And it was a good, it was a good day. I didn't score a wonder goal. That was just, just <laughs> um, if you don't mind, just just to bring it back back to yourself, as you can tell, if you don't mind me saying, this is something that obviously affects you. Do you have something of a, of a personal philosophy in the treating and regarding of of other people and other people's experience in, in in life? I think there's a natural instinct in all of us to to try and be better neighbours. I mean, ninety two, ninety five percent of us don't know our neighbours' names. Um, and then if you go to sort of, okay, well then what are their, what are their jobs? 96% of us don't know the answer to that question. I mean, if you, if you draw like a noughts and crosses, uh, grid, you put yourself in the middle and you think of your, like your literal neighbors. So we, we sort of think of it in terms of both and you're both your very local neighbors and then your global neighbors like you were talking about before. So, um, so that's why Kerry and I both, we focus on, on, on local as well as, um, I'm really trying to keep it quite small. Um, but I suppose I, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been thinking for a long time what it means to be a, a better neighbor. I grew up in the church. Um, I remember, you know, that, that bit in, in, in the Bible when Jesus is asked, like, what's the most important thing? And I don't know how I feel about organized religion. I have a mixed relationship with it. I don't tend to call myself a Christian, but I love Jesus. Like, mm -hmm. He seems like a he, good, dude. he was a radical dude. He's a radical dude with some interesting things to say about loving people. And when someone came to him and said, like, what's the most important thing? Like, cut the bullshit, man. Like, he was in his parabolic prime. He's talking in riddles, basically. And people having to figure it out. And, the, and someone comes to him and says, like, what's the most important thing? And he stops with all the other stuff. And he just says, love your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And that, it feels like organized religion often does its best to hide that <laughs> I feel <laughs> and or to skirt around it and uh it feels like if we all started there maybe we'd be in a better place so I'd been spending time thinking about this and then one morning I wake up and see a building burning outside my house right so that's sort of where my my personal journey is at the moment is is thinking about what's it look like to be a better neighbor to my neighbors and so that that involves knocking on doors taking bacon at Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bacon is really helpful. Um, uh, and, and then, and then thinking in terms of both and, cause I think you're right. The world is smaller and people on the other side of the world are affected by the decisions made on the opposite side of the world. And, and I, I do have, a, I, I, I don't quite know how, how it works. I haven't got the sort of mechanics of it, but I do get a sense that when we travel to these places and, you know, we sat in a refugee camp outside Mosul and talking with these people, with whom actually we have a lot in common. We have the same desires for our lives, we have the same desires for our children. Um, and we're just in very, very different situations growing up in very different places. And don't even speak the same language, but the amount in common is extraordinary. And that's just our humanity, I suppose. But um, it feels like there's a, there's a neighborliness there that has to be addressed more properly. So it's just, it, 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 it guts me when, you know, Trump talks about cutting aid and, and, and America, I'm an American citizen, so I'm allowed to talk about Trump. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, um, you were born in the States. I was born in the States. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I sort of feel like that 
the both and. I like the both and. I like the local and the global. I like, yeah, the idea that it doesn't. Because often you'll say when we're talking about war child, people are like, well, what about people locally? You're like, yes. Yeah, exactly. Both and. Yeah, yeah, They're not yeah. mutually exclusive, yeah, you know, totally. me, in my head anyway. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And you do you do a huge amount of work for Global Citizen and, and for, well, War Child, War Child in, in particular, but I know, and other members of, of the group. Yeah, Ben's really involved with Global Citizen. Global Citizen helped launch um, War Child's sister charity in the States, Children in Conflict, just a couple of years ago. We did during that week um, Global Citizen versus well, no, we're not versed. That'd be the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. featuring yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. children in conflict, which is the US kind of branch of War Child, and uh, they were ama- they're amazingly supportive and yeah, good people. To take action on any of the issues we talk about on the show, go to globalcitizen.org/crypower to get involved. A movement of activists all over the world who are using their collective voice to end extreme poverty by 2030. When you asked how it affects music, I think I feel like. Uh, it inevitably does and I'm, I know you feel like this as well like inevitably what you're passionate about and what you what you think about ends up filtering its way into what you write about so um, whilst being careful not to not to just tell people stories for them if it didn't feel right and sometimes I'm sure it is but for me I didn't feel like it was um, it also obviously ended up affecting the way I write songs so Delta, which is the last song on our our record, um, is, is is a truncated version. There was a really long rambling version originally of um, the story of my meeting a guy uh, in a refugee camp just outside Mosul a couple of years ago, um, who had escaped with his family from um, living in uh, East Mosul, which was under ISIS control at the time. Um, he had four kids with his wife, and they'd escaped by climbing over roofs um, and getting on a boat um and floating down the river where they were rescued by NGO workers and um he so I got to go and I, I sat in his the concrete floor of his of his tent in the refugee camp and um one of those white UN tents that you see on the news and we ate boiled sweets and he told me their story and and how they'd witnessed um public executions in the street and how um their family had been intimidated and one of their kids had been pulled out by ISIS fighters and had a gun held to his head and then luckily had escaped. Um, but they'd hunkered down in their house. He would have to go and get bread, but really the rest of the family didn't leave the house for like four years. And um, and he, he didn't want his kids to go to the local school because it was ISIS controlled and there was a lot of propaganda, obviously, and they changed the education system radically. Um, and so his four-year-old kid had never been to school in his life. And when they escaped, they got to the camp. There wasn't room in the school, in the camp that they were at because it was at breaking point in terms of numbers. And Warchild have a supplementary education centre. So there are three things that they really focus on are safety, um, education and livelihoods, not helping people come up with a way to make money in the future. And um, and so they have this supplementary education centre and the kid runs into the tent while we're talking and recites the English alphabet to me, which he had learned in three weeks at this supplementary education school. And obviously we're all just crying and crying and crying. And my job there was just to listen to his story and then to, but but there's a responsibility to bear witness as well in a sensitive way where you don't always feel like you're speaking for people. And that is really what the song Delta is all about. Um, And so inevitably it kind of, yeah, like I said, it filters through to your lyrics, but, I also 
don't think it's my job to be a cause-based artist. Of course, yeah. That comes with it. And and that's, I don't know how you find it, but I feel like there's a tension there. Yeah, the, of course, yeah. You ask yourself, how can I best utilise uh, the platform that I have? How can I best utilise the arsenal that I have to alleviate or to ameliorate some of these things that I'm that 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 trouble me and, and that that keep me up at night. I go back and forth on it a lot. This idea of Christ, what if I look like a pillock here? But I think the bigger weight is: Am I doing what I could be doing for for this? And so it is. There is that struggle. There is that tension. And you, I don't want to be. None of us want to be steered into something, or as you say, become a, a cause based artist. I was once su- super lucky after after seeing. Springsteen on Broadway. It's something that he he outlines in in his intention of for his work, which was just reminding people of what they are at their best and what we are at our best. It credits just the strength that people can yeah, show. People that. are awesome, man. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. people are awesome. We kind of you know we take it for granted or we brush it aside or we say, well, but they're so flawed, and of course they are. We all are, but innately people are awesome, and to be celebrated, and that's you know yeah, it's. What we enjoy doing at our gigs is is flipping the attention on the crowd and just we do it every night now. Tell people like, look around, take this in for a minute. People are wicked, you know. It's not all it's not all negative, and I I'm an optimist, you know. It's a brilliant um, Richard Curtis Channel Four uh, interview about optimism, which he gave, which um, just recently, which is wicked. He's like, yes, of course, these things are. He's he's speaking in his capacity as you know, comic relief. Um, uh, guru uh, but look at the things we're doing look at the things that are getting better you know look at the fact that everyday people fall in love you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, let's remind ourselves that it's not just all what we see on the news or at the moment it's not just people entrenched in politics you know um, so celebrating people is definitely and, and, and recognising that humanity in whichever situation you're in and however intense it is you're still able to eat a boiled sweet and have a laugh and, and you know, um, but w- w- yeah, but what you're saying about sticking your neck out as well. And because there's so much cacophony, especially online and people love to slack off, slag off artists. And sometimes they're totally within their rights to, yeah, sometimes yeah. they're completely Very right deserving as well. Of it. Yeah, as well. Yeah. But also just something you were, you were saying earlier on about, you can sit down with the dude on the other side of the world and eat, eat boiled sweets and, and find commonalities and in, in something that is so simple. And those commonalities are there in, in something as simple as grief. Yeah. And that's certainly what my friend Robbie Damlin, who I mentioned earlier with the parent circle in, in Israel does, she says, let's recognize the ways in which we've, and then let's listen to each other's stories because at some point she said when the, when the, when the IDF came to her door and told her her son had been killed, the first thing she said was she says she doesn't remember because she was in shock. But the first thing she said was you cannot kill anyone in the name of my son, which is an extraordinary reflex um, uh, from, from someone going through such massive trauma and grief. And, um, and then she's since written to the sniper who's in prison now, um, trying to meet with him, which the Israeli government have stopped now a number of times. Um, but she, she says, if we, yeah, if we, if we're able to find some sort of commonality and listen to each other, that not, listen to someone you disagree with, so I mean, in this case, so violently, but who is classically seen as your enemy, and you're able to listen or even to share, and that's why she encourages. Um, 
uh, Israeli parents and Palestinian parents to, to come together and share in their grief together. And and I think the idea of sticking your neck out and 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 talking about some of the things which I've certainly been reticent to do in the past, I think it has to come from a position of at least attempted integrity. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because people, what people spot a lack of integrity so quickly, I think people can sniff it out. And like the things as an artist that you sing about or you speak about, if they come from places where you've been personally really affected by something and you're able to speak about it with some sort of, it's obvious that you've gone and at least tried to listen to people and try to learn about it. And I, I that's why I think people aren't so interested in bandwagon slacktivist policies and and artists sort of doing something for the look or um or just or just something that's suddenly popped up and they haven't really been able to go and learn about it and and listen to people affected by the issue i'm a big believer in, in people's abilities to sniff out bullshit you know what i mean and inauthenticity and that happens time and time again if you find yourself inspired or angry, this podcast isn't just about talking. It's about making change happen. And you can do that right now. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on these issues. This is Hosier, and you're listening to my Crypower podcast. What is coming up? Is there anything coming up for, for your work with, with Warchild or, or Grenfell? And the kind of many- with Warchild, we've set up this thing called Warchild FC, which came originally from our first trip to Gaza, where I was with the CEO of Warchild UK, a guy called Rob Williams, who's one of my absolute heroes. And we're going around the centres and they're quite small um, in terms of footprint. And what we noticed, and I can't help but empathise with like teenage boys, right? When my wife does these trips, she emphasises with the, with the girls more. And I just look at it from the eyes, through the eyes of a, of a, of a teenage boy. And I noticed that at these centres we had, we had girls from, from zero to 18, um, and boys up to the age of about 12. But then we noticed that teenage boys just weren't coming along because they were in priests. Well, they were they're doing lots of arts and crafts and lots of like making radio shows and playing little games inside. There might be a little courtyard, but really these boys were either working, not really young, um, uh, or involved in not great stuff, um, or else they just wanted to play football. So I remember saying to Rob, like, feels like if we ran a football program, which is not reinventing the wheel, lots of people do it. We ran a football program which had integrated psychosocial support in it, which is one of Warchild's kind of um, USPs. Um, we know, so for example, we met with Gaza Mental Health Centre when we were there, and we know that um, symptoms of PTSD are reduced by 80% once the kids have been through our month-long ideals program, um, <clears throat> which is a, PSS, a psychosocial support PSS program so what we wanted to do was build in the pss into a sports program which we have called warchild fc and then the next trip we did was to central african republic we took a un plane up from the capital bangi to power which is right on sort of one of the invisible front lines with the armed groups in the in the bush we met with 12 child soldiers and rob who i was with again said why don't we put this thing to the test so we'd taken some afc wimbledon uh footballs actually and we and we sat down in this room with these 12 kids and and with my broken french we're trying to ask them their stories in a kind of sensitive way they weren't really out for talking to us. And Rob said, let's put this to the test. We got footballs out. We went play for half an hour, went back into exactly the same room. And suddenly those barriers have been broken down by just running around together. Girls and boys. And we played a game of football, sweatiest, dustiest game of football of all time. 
and went back into the room and suddenly they were open to talking. So we felt like it's an obvious and tried and tested method to use sport um, to to break down um, barriers. And so that's the next thing that's happening. Amazing. Yeah, I have to say. And thank you so much. Andrew, I know. Thank you, man. I know you're only thanks home for a few me. days, so I'm I'm very conscious of the fact that you're leaving on Saturday, which is <laughs> amazing to me. So the fact that you would come in and give us this time. Well, is it's because incredible. I love you, man. And well, <laughs> thank you very, very much for having me. It's an honor thank to talk you. with you. Thank you so thanks, much. Mate. It's it, the honor is all mine. Thank you. <laughs> I love you, man. is made in association with Global Citizen, a movement of activists all over the world who are using their collective voice to end extreme poverty by 2030. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on any of the issues we talk about on this show and earn tickets to gigs all over the world by signing petitions, writing emails, or sending tweets to world leaders. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Crypower podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Hosier, and this is Cry Power.